Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Ryan Mara Evans. I'm a student farm manager with the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is Andy Nathan. Andy is the Chief Marketing Officer of Victors and Spoils, the first advertising agency based on crowdsourcing principles. Nathan uses marketing to create a healthier America. One of his most recent projects pitted kale against broccoli in an effort to get more Americans to eat their fad-free vegetables. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. So to start off, I'd like to talk a little bit about Victors and Spoils' website. It, it opens up with a bold declaration. It says, ignore the world when you make advertising, and the world will ignore the advertising that you make. What does that mean? You know, I think the, the, the fundamental belief, and in, in for me, who's worked at a lot of agencies, both in New York and London, is that all the answers sit within the four walls of an ad agency, that you, know, you have all the expertise in-house. I think for us, we try to be very open and very collaborative. So we are the first to admit we don't have all the answers. In fact, there are people who are closer to the product, closer to the brand, more passionate about the brand that can help us kind of contribute to the, the strategic thinking and the creative you know, development of that specific brand. So for us, you know, we really want to kind of work with people who they could be experts, they could be people who are most passionate about that brand, they could be regular consumers to help us kind of really think through that specific project or assignment. And now to zero in on the United States food industry, how has advertising shaped the United States food industry? I think, you know, pretty significantly, actually. I mean, I you know, one of the things that's very clear is, um, you know, there are some regulations, but the reality is a lot of the marketing opportunities and sponsorships, you know, we were just looking at something the other day where I think, you know, in 2015, sports sponsorships is going to be something like $14.5 billion dollars. And a lot of those um, specific sponsorship and marketing opportunities tend to go to the highest bidder. And the highest bidder tends to be the ones that are very profitable. And a lot of times it's things like processed foods. And so I think, you know, the reality is um, they very much control, you know, how we consume uh, and also kind of how we are marketed to. Uh, so this is this is where your work with broccoli versus kale comes in, right? Um, you're kind of trying to, I guess, fracture this this hegemonic structure yeah. of what food advertising is. Could you tell me a little bit about the story behind the broccoli versus kale? Sure. How that was conceptualized, sure. how that came into being, how it was finally executed. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that you know the journey actually started a few years back when I worked at another agency, and my client was a company called Bold House Farms. And Bold House um, is run by um, the marketing, the CMO and the CEO are both ex-Coke guys. Um, in fact, the CEO was, was uh, president of um, Coke in North America. And um, in the end, uh, they came to us and they said, look, you know, we work at Bold House Farms. We are one of the two largest uh, manu- North American manufacturers of carrots, and we want to launch carrots to the world. And in the end, we came up with a campaign called Baby Carrots, Eat Them Like Junk Food. And I think the reality for us was, you know, carrots um, was something that it was like the junk food no one was eating like junk food. It's snackable. It's portable. It's dippable. It's neon orange. It's crunchy. It's sweet. It has all the attributes that when you think of, um, of, of junk food, but it just didn't have the marketing characteristics. So we created a campaign around that. Um, so we kind of built a relationship with them. Several of us who worked on that campaign went on to work at Victors and Spoils. So they, in conjunction with Michael Moss, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning 
a journalist for the New York Times, he basically said, look, we'd love you to do this pro bono. And what he asked us to do was, can you mark, can you do a pro bono version of, you know, how would you market broccoli to the world? And we said, well, why broccoli? And he said, well, if you can make broccoli cool, you can make anything cool. So we set out to, to do it. And we just figured it was more of a, a blueprint or a, a kind of a marketing exercise. If you applied some of these, you know, consumer package could, you know, marketing techniques for something as healthy as, as healthy and as boring as broccoli, you know, how would you do it? And in the end, what we did is, you know, we could have said, well, you know, it's, it's healthy, it's an antidote to, to junk food. But the reality is, we realized that there was actually some cultural momentum that already existed in the world of healthy foods, and it was kale. You know, anyone who lives in a major urban center knows that, like, kale's on every menu. In fact, we saw, like, a, a stat from NPR that said in the last three years, kale increased on, on menus like 400%. Oh, my goodness. It was as trendy as it could get. So we, you know, we, we were kind of fixated on that and said, well, you know, let's really kind of observe what kale did and, and then not only try to mimic some of their tactics but almost hijack some of their tactics and, and really kind of behave as if we had the attitude of, of brands such as kale. And so we kind of, you know, created a playful sibling rivalry, you know, and we had lines like broccoli now 43% less pretentious than kale and really kind of poked fun at, you know, the ridiculous nature of, of how people celebrate and kind of wax, po you know, like poetic, poetic about kale. So two things from that. One, how did kale become so popular? And two, how did broccoli become so so drab and boring? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember that, that instance, right? George W. Bush, yeah. our last president, right? He he kind of said, oh, broccoli, disgusting, no good. I was forced to eat it, which yeah. I think is a pretty typical sentiment that's shared amongst yeah. a lot of people of at least my parents' generation, maybe not the generation before that. But mm. yeah, could, could you outline? Sure. Well, we'll start with broccoli. Um, you know, it's a very polarizing vegetable. Um, and it was an interesting one. There's a lot of presidential history around broccoli. So um, Thomas Jefferson actually imported broccoli seeds from Italy um, way back when. He actually loved broccoli. Obviously, you know, I think most people know that uh, Obama loves broccoli, too, which probably created some polarization, too. And then w what you mentioned about George Bush as well. So from a presidential standpoint, it's actually been very high profile. When we looked at it in culture, it, you know, we kind of called it, it was like punishment food. It was, you know, you, 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 you know, until you, you can't eat your dessert, you can't eat this or that until you eat your broccoli. You know, even things, there was like Seinfeld episodes where it kind of talked about it and Newman called it a, a vile weed. And, you know, it, it just really was always this thing in culture that was considered that punishment food. Um, and so that was a real challenge for us, you know, and, and part of why we created this, this broccoli versus kale campaign was, you know, to us, um, we needed to provide some cognitive dissonance. We knew that people had a preconceived notion of what broccoli was, and it was mostly negative. And the other thing we learned about broccoli is it kind of had like an inferiority complex. It was kind of hidden under cheese, you know, kind of buried in Chinese food. It was on a side plate. It just didn't, it had a confidence problem. So we needed to move it from a side plate to kind of being more center stage and kind of almost behave more like the stoic tree that it is. Um, so, you know, we, we really learned about, and then, and that kind of is where we pivoted to kale. I mean, with, with few exceptions, you know, no one has more cultural momentum than kale has over the last year or two. And literally it was like kind of, you know, talked about and praised in things like the New York Times style section and said, you know, what's hot right now is all things midriff, you know, great Gatsby and kale. 
you know, so they're going on about how great kale is. And to us, so then we started to really understand and study, um, you know, where did this whole kale craze start? And to us, from what we can gather, it started with a, a, like a, a guy, a farmer in Vermont who created a shirt for it. And then the shirt kind of somehow got to, you know, the likes of places like Williamsburg, Virginia. And then it became a little more popular. It was increasingly on menus and it was out of the home. I mean, that was one of the issues with broccoli is it was always in the home on your plate, you know, at the dinner table. Whereas, you know, kale and part part of it was kale is a very versatile vegetable. So it was in a lot more places and it kind of catapulted itself in in pop culture. Right. So. I'd like to read a quote from an article published in the Yale Herald about the broccoli versus kale campaign earlier this year. So, though they had less than four grand in total, their campaign covered plenty of ground in the New Haven area. Three billboards on I-91 and 95 broadcasted broccoli's coolness to 400,000 drivers over several weeks before and during spring break. Queen-size broccoli ads covered the sides of two New Haven transit buses and ads hung in some of the Yale shuttles and dining halls. How was it ex- this expansive, hyper-concentrated, hyper-local rollout? How effective was it? I think it was very effective. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I mean, originally this was a pro bono exercise. It wasn't really intended to run in the world. In the end, the place that it ran, it was the cover story of the November 1st edition of the New York Times magazine. New York Times did a seven-minute documentary that sat on their website. But really, that was supposed to be the end of it. And, you know, what was really impressive is there was three Yale students um, who were so inspired by the article and the campaign itself that they actually approached us about bringing it to New Haven, which, you know, from from, you know, to a certain extent is is a food desert and, and could use, you know, some an ounce of uh, fruits and vegetables on its kind of billboards. So we, you know, we were really excited about the idea and we partnered with them. We contributed a little bit of money ourselves and we provide them with all the materials and, you um, in the end, it was it was actually very successful. I mean, from what we understand, talking to one of the retailers, um, broccoli sales were up 111 uh, percent in their store. So we were really excited about that. That's astounding. And you know, the the other thing is, I mean, I think you know, great ideas tend to light a fuse. And and you know, it started with Yale, but this is a campaign that now has lived on in the likes of um, you know upstate New York. Um, someone you know, some students at Cornell kind of took it there. Um, Amsterdam. Uh, L.A., New York, and now we even have a one of the largest broccoli manufacturers east of the Mississippi who's inquired about running the campaign um, for their own uh, marketing use. What an, yeah, incredible success. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I'd like to seize on, you keep mentioning kind of the pro bono nature mm-hmm. of, the, of this project. I don't necessarily foresee, and this may be me being naive, I don't necessarily foresee a lot of advertising agencies lining up to do free advertising campaigns for vegetables. So where can we get the money, right, or the profitability to advertise something like like rutabagas or yams or, you know, something like strawberries in the summer? That's, I mean, that's the challenge is that, you know, those types of commodity-based foods don't typically have marketing budgets. So, but I think, you know, the more that we have, you know, whether it's the Baby Cares campaign, the Broccoli campaign, you know, instances in culture where it shows that it works, you know, to market these healthy foods, um, then I think more will jump in and invest some marketing dollars around it. And I think the important thing about both those campaigns is it was all about making the healthy foods the fun foods. So, you know, instead of just being the antidote to processed food or junk food saying, hey, you know, we're fun too, and, and really kind of behaving as a brand 
that has that kind of illicit behavior or that kind of new news and the magnetism that you come to expect from the snack aisle. So you, you picked up on or these two most recent campaigns focused on, you know, kale, broccoli, carrots, which are three pretty high profile, I guess, like easily marketable kind of goods. What do you view as being necessary to make all vegetables sexy or fun? Is, is that even a reasonable goal or something to expect? I think it's a very reasonable goal. And I think, the, again, I think it's a shift in attitude. I think, you know, for consumers and, it, you know, it's not only, I mean, to us, you know, the, the big issue is the childhood obesity epidemic. And, and, but it has to start with the parents. You know, they're the ones who have to kind of, you know, buy these types of foods, but, you know, their kids need to want it. And I think part of what we said about, you know, broccoli is we need to shift it from being the should eat to wanting to eat it. And so, and all that is, I mean, the beauty about fruits and vegetables is you don't really need to change anything about it. You know, it's always going to be the same as it is. It's not processed. It's, you know, and so really what you need to do is market yourself differently, which is something they've never really done. I mean, if you look at, you know, other commodity-based products that have been successful, the Got Milk campaign was one that's been extremely successful and had a lot of, like, pop culture fame. So it's really about just having a little more of a marketing swagger. And I think, you know, to us, it's it's about the produce aisle behaving differently and really taking some of its cues from the snack aisle. So if the end goal is to, one, either, like, address the childhood obesity epidemic or in the context of these two campaigns, the carrots and the kale campaign, to get people to eat more fresh veggies. Who should be doing the legwork? Because, I mean, I'm thinking about Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign um, or the Got Milk campaign. Who should be doing the heavy lifting? Is it the advertisers? Is it the government? Is it the parents? Um, Can you kind of extract any individual (laughs) one from the equation? Are they all equally important? It's a great question. Um, It's very much a symbiotic relationship. But I think ultimately, you know, I think the government and the marketers will respond when the consumers demand more. So, you know, and I think anytime you want to, like, you know, create a movement, and if this is a movement about getting people to eat healthier, then we need to find a way to kind of stoke this fire and get, you know, consumers to to, to demand better and demand more and demand healthier. So I think by virtue of that, you need to really kind of incite you know, consumers to want it, you know, have more demand for these things and really kind of applaud, you know, marketing innovation in the produce aisle. And by virtue of that, I think, you know, marketers will take take note and they will start kind of going in, you know, to me, a, a, an interesting parallel category is when you look at like things like, you know, um, de- deodorant, body spray, especially in the male uh, grooming side of it. And when you look at it, it used to be very much efficacy-based. It was all about, you know, lasts longer, stays drier, that sort of thing. And then there was a brand called Axe that came in and said, no, this is, this is the body sprayer that, you know, that gives you the edge in the mating game. And then all of a sudden, others followed suit. You had Tag and you had Mitchum, and they were very male-oriented. And then, you know, then you had Old Spice who kind of leapfrogged them all. Um, and, you know, almost depositioned them as being a little more sophomore. But it went from a very functional message to a very emotional message. And now that's like the category norm. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what the produce aisle eventually will be. I think if we, if we all do our job, you know, the, the, you know, the government and the marketers themselves, two to three years from now, you know, the produce aisle will be a much more emotive category in terms of marketing and advertising. Colorado is also home to Chipotle and otherwise like giant in this like healthy fast food or ethical fast food 
movement. Can you comment a little bit about the trend of healthy fast food places that are incorporating kind of this this ethical consumer dimension into their market marketing or advertising campaigns? Um, and then secondly, what makes Chipotle's marketing mix so effective? Yeah, sure. I mean, I th- you know I think. Um... They they really have been a pioneer. I mean, I think it's, you know, for us who live in Boulder, who's not very far from where they were founded, it's kind of proud to have a, a company like that. And and actually, we've done some work with them early on uh, in our life cycle. Um, you know, I, I think, again, they, they are another one who are setting, setting the, the example for the rest of the fast casual category. And others will be almost forced to follow suit or they'll be left behind. Uh, and, and I think, you know, what, what they've done a good job about doing is it, it just doesn't feel gratuitous. It feels really central to their narrative and central to their ethos as a company. And I think consumers can really detect that. They, they know when, you know, it's, um, you know, whether, you know, it, you know, they're doing it for the sake of actually kind of PR or media attention, and it's, it just feels a little forced, whereas, like, it really is inherent in their DNA. So I think that's what makes them so great. And I think, you know, they've done some things. I mean, they've done a better job marketing than anyone in their category. When you look at some of the things, they had some famous long-form ads. There was uh, the Scarecrow ad, um, and then I believe there was one most, or there was one even before that as well, um, back to the start, the one that Willie Nelson sang, and there were these long-form ads that ran online. Um, but they really were high entertainment value. They struck a nerve in terms of the message they were trying to make. Um, and they, and because of that, I think that combination really made them, you know, high velocity in terms of their reach um, to various consumers. So one may critique, I guess, ethical advertising or green advertising as somewhat of a greenwashing, yeah. right? Where you're just slapping a green label on something and saying, yes, this is going to save the world. Um, and there are clearly dangers involved with that. To that, to that ends, um, who is going to do the most structural change, right? Is it going to be markets? Is it going to be consumers, advertisers? Can green capitalism exist? Can green businesses exist? Uh, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, there's this notion of conscious capitalism. And, um, and I think increasingly, I, I think there's an element of positive peer pressure where, you know, companies are, again, you know, genuinely you know, doing something for good, you know, not, you know, kind of defying the laws of greenwashing and and are getting applauded um, for it, both in terms of like as an industry or a category leader, but also consumers are applauding them for it as well. And I think it's really forcing other um, competitors in those marketplaces to reappraise, you know, their values and how they approach things. So I think that's something that we're going to find uh, much more moving forward. And, and I think the other thing that's interesting is when you look at, you know, some of these companies that have great value. So Annie's is a classic example of that. And Annie's was just acquired by General Mills. You know, so it's an interesting. I think some people raise their eyebrows and say, whoa, you know, is, is that the death of Annie's? Or, or could you look at it the other way? It's like, you know, what impact can they have and really kind of make General Mills a better company? So, you know, in some ways, I think you're going to see a lot more of those where these companies that have these great values and, you know, are doing some great things in the world and really stand on their principles are being acquired by, you know, bigger conglomerates. And, you know, I, I inherently to see that it, maybe there's more of a, a positive impact that they can have on their larger kind of, you know, holding company. What's one company or business that you think is doing that exceptionally well right now? <laughs> 
you know, it's a definitely a different category. But to me, I just so fascinated by Tesla, you know, and the things that they're doing in terms of like, you know, the impact that they're having on the world beyond even automotive and just, you know, the conversations that they're having that, you know, how they're really listening to consumers in terms of, you know, making their products. But, I, you know, to me, I think they're the gold standard. All right. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for sure. this wonderful interview. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.